Hi everyone and welcome back to our Brexit and Beyond podcast and I'm delighted today that our guest is Bobby Duffy. Professor Bobby Duffy, formerly of Ipsos Mori, now of King's College. I think Bobby's actually my line manager. He's an all-round good guy. He's written an absolutely fantastic book. You might get me a pay rise if uh, if you all listen to this. But Bobby, welcome. Uh, thank you. What a great welcome. <laughs> and I have to say, I mean, I find you slightly annoying in the sense that you not only run the Policy Institute, but you seem to put out a book every year, Yeah. which uh, I don't understand how you managed to do that. And your latest one, uh, having spent a long time working on polarisation, yeah. is on generations. Can you give us the sort of two-minute synopsis? Yeah, sure. So, uh, yeah, I'm not going to be doing another one soon, is the first thing to say. This is, uh, I think you said that to me a I think ago. I did say that last time, actually, as well. The synopsis is that generational thinking is a really powerful idea that you can trace back to some of the biggest thinkers in sociology and philosophy, people like mm-hmm. Karl Mannheim, August Comte, they've all got this uh, theory and then practical uh, lessons from how generations are formed and then basically determine the speed of societal development mm-hmm. because, you know, we get stuck in our ways when we get older. We need new generations coming through and that changes. So understanding how generations are different from each other, truly different from each other, is, is vital to understand how society is now and then how it will change in the future. So you've got this massive idea that is integral to society as it is and how it's changing, but it's been hopelessly, horribly corrupted by terrible cliches and stereotypes and myths. Things like millennials killing everything, everything from the napkin industry to uh, wine corks to the Olympics to whatever. Millennials are supposed to have killed... Grammar. Grammar. Yes, that comes up a lot about language, although it's actually Gen Z. Gen Z are always getting accused of killing the English language because of their use of different types of... Uh, and it's a, it's a classic of history where every young generation is denigrated by older people. You can go back to Socrates. He hated young people, thought they had no morals, all those types of things. You go through each age of history and the current generation of young are always the worst ever generation of young. So we've got this sense of... So we've got this sense of these stereotypes have corrupted this view of a really powerful idea and it's really important it gets really tied up in really big issues like culture wars Mm -hmm. um snowflakes versus boomers those those types of things these these big big cliches gets caught up in climate change where there's this cliche it's only young people that care about Mm -hmm. climate change boomers don't care all of these stereotypes they seem small on their own but when you add it all up it's a uh, it's a really big drag on us understanding each other and then on big issues like climate Um, because it's important if Boomers are constantly told they don't care about climate. Like we know what people think the norm is. is important to how they behave themselves. So mm-hmm. We are effectively alienating large parts of the population by saying it's only the young people that care about these types of things. Can I just butt in there, just simply to manifest my pig ignorance, mm. and just ask you to tell me yeah. what a boomer is, what yep. the hell Gen Z, what, what do all these terms actually terms mean? Yeah, it's a really good point, because it is, it's like, uh, I've been so immersed in all this, you kind of assume this this knowledge, but they, they are constructs that people have come up with over the years, so baby boomers are uh, those born between 1945 and 1965, classically in the definition, and that's related to a real demographic event, where there mm-hmm. was actually two baby booms, interlinked baby booms post-war. And the next generation, 1966 to 1979, which is my generation's Gen X, they're the ones that no one ever talks about. We've kind of been forgotten entirely in this. And then you get millennials, who are 1980 to 1995, um, mostly in most definitions. <coughs> and then Gen Z, who is 1996 to current, really. I mean, although people are already talking about Gen Alpha, 
who are the kids of today, oh, the cool. sort of 11-year-olds. It's never going to stop, Anna. There's going to be this <laughs> endless stream of these. People love naming the generations. It's part of the story that we tell ourselves to understand ourselves and why we're different from other generations. So this is another reason why I think it's uh, really important to do the proper analysis on generations, which is all about trying to understand what's truly different between generations, what is just a matter of life cycle, which is whether you're young or old, and what's just a period effect, as it's called, right. which is what's happening at this current time. Because we, there's some people that are saying we should just drop these generation, this generational thinking because of this stereotyping. But I think that's right. We'll just leave it to people who do it badly then. But there's some real power in here if you can unpick it. So just one example is culture wars, where we've got this perception that we've got a particularly unusual uh, bunch of snowflake social justice warrior young people coming mm-hmm. through right now. But when I look at the long-term gap between young and old on issues like race, gender, gender identity, gender equality, sexuality, all of those types of social issues, the gaps between young and old now are no bigger than the gaps between young and old in the past. If anything, baby boomers were more different from their parents than uh, people that the generations are now. And what we've got is a period effect I would say this is not a cohort effect of a different generation. Right. It's a period of effect of we've got a more polarised, fractious politics and social media and media where we hear about the extremes and we've set this up as a battle between the generations, but it's actually not a cohort effect at all, generational effect at all. It's a period effect. We've got different contexts creating that sense of increased tension. And I, I suppose in a way it's a self-fulfilling prophecy because we're sort of predisposed to look for polarisation these days, exactly. aren't we, which means we're going to find it. Now... I don't know whether it was extremely good luck or appallingly skillful management, but you brought your book out during a week when this was an issue because of the national insurance mm. hike and so on. So just to put some flesh on the bones of what you've been talking about, sort of give it practical impact, yeah. what, what did that debate about social care reveal about the themes in your book? A really good question. Yeah, so it was blind luck. Um, but equally, this comes up a lot, you know, this, the, the difference... Of, the different ways in which the generations or age groups are treated actually comes up quite a bit. Mm-hmm. comes up in all sorts of different ways. There was a triple lock before that, yep. and then it was the, the social care levy. So this, what this shows is that using national insurance as the instrument to raise the funds for this automatically builds in intergenerational inequality mm-hmm. to this um, because it's not paid on pension income. So you, you're immediately, you've got the older group that are going to be benefiting from that in the short term are paying 2% of that cost Mm -hmm. um, compared to 50% going to people working age below 50, 50% of that cost. So you've got this massive imbalance. And this is like not a one-off. It's at the end of a long, long trend where you've seen how government spend, tax and spending has started, has favoured older people. This, and particularly the cohort of baby boomers, more and more over time and it's you know some of it is the, the argument <clears throat> I'm making is some of it is very much related to the demographic and electoral weight of that baby boomer generation you really mm-hmm. don't you don't want to annoy them because they are they vote there's a lot of them and they vote a lot so there is a political element to that too but there's also it's a really odd thing to divide people on age um, or generation because it doesn't get it doesn't end up in outright generational war or conflict between the age groups you don't get young people on the streets Mm. protesting about this or demanding that the money is taken back off granny for uh, whatever it is which is when you look at the reality of this you could say they are quite justified in doing that but how how little help they've had 
but it's because of all the interconnections between the age groups. So we, <clears throat> we love our parents and grandparents. We don't want to get things taken off them. We also know that if they get less support, we're going to end up having to fill the gap in time or money ourselves. So it's quite an unusual thing yeah, in that. Yeah. We're also all going to age ourselves. So we know we don't know how we're going to be treated as old people. But one of mm. the few indicators we've got is how we treat old people today. So we don't want to take things off them. And then the final thing is, it, when we did some focus groups on this a while back on intergenerational inequality, an incredible sense of the importance of contribution in our sense mm. of British fairness. Have you paid in? And old people, older people, by dint of just being around longer, have paid in. And people got a really strong sense that they deserve to get stuff out because right. they paid in. And it's a mirror effect of why in the UK we've had a particular issue with the concern about immigration, is that immigrants haven't been around to pay in. So yeah. And that's why we stand out, have stood out in the past at least, on that sense of immigration not being a positive. I must say, I get slightly more keen on the triple lot with every passing year, I'm not quite sure why. <laughs> but uh, yeah. as, part, as part of your research for the book, you dug out a, a front page from Money Magazine, I think yeah. from the early 1980s, in which they, they, were, they were expressing the worry that the boomers will never do as well as their parents. And that's yes. quite interesting, isn't it? Because we talk as if that's new. I can't, I've lost count of the number of newspaper articles saying, for the first time ever, the next generation will not be as prosperous as the last. Is that a story as old as time itself? Have we always worried about that? Oh, I see. Yeah, no, we've always worried, I think. I think the, the reason I was pulling it out in the book is to point out that when baby boomers were growing up, um, or you know, early on in their career, they had no idea that it was going to turn out that house prices would go through the roof mm. and, and that they'd have long-term private wealth growth and they, would, they did have wage growth uh, that younger generations didn't have. So it's not their fault and it's not their... We, we tend to have a lot of boomer blaming in many ways, but mm -hmm. it didn't look nearly as rosy back then for them. And uh, that, that having that sense of we're uncertain about how it's going to turn out is uh, really important. But, but something has changed, mm -hmm. which is the reality was that baby boomers did do better than the pre-war generation, significantly better than the pre-war generation. Then Gen X sort of scrape through just about moving on a little bit and then millennials it's actually gone backwards for in, in lots of different ways and Gen Z are in a similar position. So you, the reality has changed and this is really important because we had got used to the idea of generation on generation progress that uh, post-war we had this sense that actually things are going to keep getting better and that hasn't been the reality mm. and, and one of the big points in the book is not only is there not generational war, intergenerational war it's also, we've got this wrong idea of generational thinking as about young versus old in some way, or current versus future, when actually we're all deeply interested in, is it going to be better for my kids or my grandkids? So it's actually, it's a real, if you lose that sense of generation on generation progress, it's not just a problem for young people, it's a concern for parents and grandparents. And is the system working? If I think my kids are just going to go, it's going to go backwards for my kids, it makes me question the current system as well because we're so connected up and down um, the age groups. And you can see mm. that is the big worry is, is this sort of intergenerational lack of progress and very unequal outcomes for people uh, for different parts of the community when you're actually seeing Michael Marmot's work showing a reversal in life expectancies yeah. for certain parts of um, uh, more deprived areas in the northeast or in, and women in particular. We actually start to see life expectancy going down for chunks of the population. You think, God, we really have stopped progress. And how much of this is due to 
the shift from income-based prosperity to wealth-based mm. prosperity. I mean, it strikes me that at the heart of this, there's a very fundamental economic shift that both our attitudes and public policy have been very, very slow to wrap our heads around. Yeah. Yeah, Would that huge, be fair? Huge amount, huge amount. And yeah, David Willett's book, The Pinch, really pointed that out. Mm. Um, um, even, you know, 2010, uh, when it was first out, it's... Uh, that's one of the big stories of our times is the shift from income to wealth is a determinant of your economic success and there's all sorts of implications flow from that because it particularly because it's a housing boom driven not solely but it's a big chunk of that is housing price boom um, driven that means that you're concentrating that wealth in a not everyone's hands uh, but a, a large group of hands that are older and then how that flows down is going to be hugely important story for the next 10, 20 years, because it's going to flow down very unevenly. And you've yep. got this this sense of uh, baking in inequalities because you've made wealth such a big thing and because it's concentrated in certain groups within that older population. You're, we've baked in this tumble down of inequality into mm. future generations. And I think the re- sometimes when people criticise generational thinking, they say the real issue isn't generations when you were born, it is purely socioeconomic inequality. And I think that misses the point. The point is about how those two things interact, because that changes over generations. And, and now we're going to see a big story of intergenerational inequality coming through in the next 10, 10 or so years. And brutally, it's easier to lock in wealth than it is to lock in income. Yes, absolutely. I mean, w- one of the things I love about all your books, pay rise again, uh, <laughs> is, is that there's, 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 there's usually a sort of theoretical core. Now, you're far too well versed in how you do and don't sell books to sort of put it in such social science language yeah. but there's, there is always something that looks like a key sort of explanatory trick and in this what you see you make the very ambitious claim that you can explain all shifting behaviors via three mechanisms your three mechanisms are life cycle effects period effects and cohort effects do you just want to spell those out yeah and no, i think it's a little magical thing um when you're looking at trends over time and or trying to understand people in a particular moment and and someone is pointing out a difference or a change, um, a difference between groups or a change over time. Just having that little uh, three-way split in your head when you're looking at that to say, mm. is this an age-based effect where you've just got a life cycle going on where people change as they age? And so many of the stereotypes around generations are to do with actually you've just taken a cross-sectional slice of population there and, and that's what young people think now. But that was also what young people thought or did back so you become a Tory when you're 43 or whatever. But yeah, yeah, so there is like really decent academic work that shows there is this, uh, that there is truth in the, the sayings about liberals uh, in your 20s and, and conservative in your, in your 30s. That does seem to shift over time. And it's kind of, you know, people have proved that or shown that through sophisticated statistical analysis that takes this age period cohort effect and tries to model and separate them. What I'm trying to do in the book is no modelling, uh, just purely you can get an idea of that by tracking it through plotting lines of cl- cohorts. Because you, mm. you can see a cohort effect really easily. So if you imagine religion, um, how religious you are, or how connected you feel to religion. If you plotted baby boomers, your, your generation, sorry to say, and then over time, um, you would... I'd just like to make it clear <laughs> to listeners that he's not that much younger than me. <laughs> so let's not get carried away here. <laughs> If you plotted your generation over time as baby boomers, very flat. So 60% say they're connected to a religion. Mm. But it doesn't change throughout their life. And the same, a lower level for Gen X and a lower level for millennials, but all flat. So that is, there's no life cycle 
effects yeah. going on there. That's something you're socialized into, and you can kind of see that very easily. Other, other things, very life cycle driven, like weight, how, how healthy, your, the proportion of different generations that are a healthy weight just goes down this sort of, uh, sort of unavoidable drift down to fatness, a greater uh, weight as you get older. And you can see that's a very clear lifestyle right. effect. And everyone follows the same pattern. Generation after generation, you just get harder and harder to stay a healthy weight as you get older. And then period effects. You can obviously see big ones, like the pandemic has just changed people's attitudes to so many things, but you see it around terrorism attacks, terrorist attacks or uh, economic crashes. But you also see this sort of slow movement of all cohorts, all generations getting more relaxed, say, about homosexuality or gay marriage. It kind mm. of, it's different, you know, different levels within the generations, but there's a period effect there too where everyone is moving in a particular direction. So whenever I look at something now, my immediate thought is when I'm looking at a trend or I'm thinking of someone making a claim about this, this is different from this because of that, I think, but is that age an age effect, a period effect, or a cohort effect? And it's very handy quick thing to sort out myth from reality. I'd like to think that people grow out of Sporting Man United, which you could maybe look at it in your next survey. <laughs> yeah. But uh, let me just say, actually related to that, for those of you interested in this, that I think on our next podcast, or our next but one, we're going to be talking to Rob Ford, who does quite yeah. a lot of very, very interesting yeah, work brilliant. on these age and cohort effects. We're going to take a very, very short break, and we'll be back with you in a few seconds. Hello there, I'm Katie Hayward, Senior Fellow for UK and a Changing Europe specialising in Northern Ireland and Brexit, based at Queen's University in Belfast. Apologies for interrupting, but seeing as you're here, I thought you might be interested in signing up to our newsletter, which is now weekly. You can keep up to speed by going to our website, www.ukandeu.ac.uk. See you there. Welcome back, everyone. Bobby's still with me, I'm delighted to say. And one of the things that came up in our earlier discussion and comes in the book is that these myths grow up. So mm. the myth that only young people care about the environment. Mm. How and why do we get these myths in the first place? It's a really good question. Some of it is it's based in a kernel of truth. So there's a little bit and then it's just exaggerated. But a lot of it goes back to the, the older book on misperceptions where we are drawn to really eye-catching examples of things. So we've got a massively eye-catching example on climate change with mm -hmm. Greta Thunberg and then all the climate strikes that came as part of the movement that she was behind. So we we're very much drawn to those types of things and they stick because they're unusual mm. in, in our brain. We've, got, we've, kind of got, we've drawn attention to that. And that kind of swamps out the other aspects of, say, climate campaigning that you see, which is, you know, we do, I guess, we would think of David Attenborough, the founders of Extinction Rebellion in their 40s and 50s. You've got you know, Al Gore in his 70s. You've got all these other people that just weren't as unusual, I guess, in in drawing their uh, attention to themselves as, as climate campaigners. So, so there's a kernel of truth in it, and there is a difference of views. And there has been change over time as well. Uh, older people have become more concerned over time, So, but we're also very bad at spotting change in those types of things. So we've got an image in mind of mm. older people as uncaring, and then we got uh, it, that changes, but we don't update our view on it. And I have to say, I mean, like some of the book talks a bit about... There is effectively a generational clickbait industry out there because it's it, it's mm. so popular in headlines, boomers versus millennials, and all those types of things that the the media environment and you know poor poor research that just does very simple you know, cross sectional comparisons is like manner to people wanting things to go uh, go go viral on social media. You can just starting a 
war between generations on social media or on media is a surefire way to get reaction from people. I mean, I don't know what you think about this, but I, I've always thought, actually, it is amazing how long it took us to have this argument about the distributive consequences of pensions. Mm. And actually, that's always been the case, mm. that how you treat pensions has implications for those in work for younger generations because there's a you know big time lag between, those, between starting to pay and actually receiving a pension. And for me, the amazing thing isn't that we're talking about it now, it's that we didn't talk about it for so many years. Yeah, and it's really interesting. It is, and I mean, you know, when you look at John Hill's discussion on welfare as a lifetime redistribution mm. system, and you think of that type of thinking, you, you think the, the thinking is there, but it just doesn't draw much attention to from the public or from politicians particularly. And I think it partly relates to the points I was making before about we don't have, we have these interconnections between the ages where your sense of connection and love to grandparents and parents means that it's not just that young people vote less it's that they don't vote against these types of things in a lot of the lot of the questions that you look at when even though we've seen pension income go up much higher than wages in the last few years when you, in the surveys young people still want to give older people more pension income it comes up as one of the top priorities right. in government spending so we've still got that sense again partly outdated sense of pensioners being all pensioners being in poverty, partly a sense of, you know, there still is real pensioner poverty, clearly. So there isn't really that impetus for it. And I think there is a bigger point there, again, that we try to make in, I try to make in the book about generally our thinking is show, so short term that we yeah. haven't got, we've got short term political cycles, short, short attention span for these types of things that we need to embed much more uh, generational, intergenerational thinking into our our approach to that type of policy making. There are like small initiatives happening with the Future Generations Commissioner in Wales, who mm. is supposed is got powers to look at and query what is this going to do to the next generation. And I think that is a bit of a there's a bit of momentum around that around diff- different countries. And it's, the word is that you know European Commission is going to embed that more with their their spending packages called Next Generation. They are looking at what are the structures that you would put around making sure that sort of things happens is there is a bit of a movement in that direction but we really need that embedding yeah. that longer term view. I mean the European Commission of course has a vested interest in promoting long term depoliticised policy making because that means the European Commission gets to do it. Yeah. I mean one of the interesting and rather sad things here I suppose is that both major parties have spoken about the need for cross-party consensus when it comes to dealing with social care. And, of course, when the proposals came out, the governing party itself was taken by surprise, let alone there being any genuine... And it's just very hard to do. But I've got, as we, as we come towards the end, a couple of sort of more explicitly political questions, mm. one of which is, in this country, your age is a very good predictor of how you vote. Mm. In other countries, that's not so true. I mean, there's a, a... I can't remember the exact figure, but there's quite a surprisingly large proportion of young people voted for Marine Le Pen in the yeah. last presidential, which, of course, is very different. Why is that? Yes, really interesting. I mean, I'm not sure I have a, a full answer to that because if it, when you look at if you if you look at the Conservative Party support all the way back to 1983, generationally, it's mm. always had a strong age or generation based element to it. With big gaps where pre-war generation much more likely, and it goes down the generations a bit, and then when uh, all the way up to 19, uh, from 1983 up to say 2015, that sort of time, these gaps fairly consistent, but it looked quite bad for the Conservatives because each younger generation was voting for them or supporting them less. You look at Labour um, pattern and there's a zero age or generation basis from 1983 all the way to 2014-15. Like there's just uh, hardly any gaps between the generations and the age groups and it goes up and down over time but they move in exactly the same way until you get to that sort of mid 
2010s period where you just got this explosion in um, generational gap for the labour vote. Mm. Um, and it's kind of, but why is that happening? And I mean, I do think this is where the run-up to Brexit, Brexit and now post-Brexit expansion of those types of themes into a broader culture war explain some of this. Because it's sort of like, um, if, if you put cultural concerns more than economic concerns at the centre of politics, you're almost guaranteeing an age or generational based split. Yeah. In, because, as you see throughout history, younger people, younger generations coming through are more comfortable with change, more socially progressive on, on those types of things, older groups less so. So as soon as you've got immigration, integration, that sort of openness, and then moving on to more culture war type issues, we are building in a age or generational gap and that is really for me that's one of the worrying things from the book is that is very difficult dynamic to get out of once you get into yeah. it because you're institutionalizing it aren't you if you're making that the axis of politics then actually there's no escaping from the intergenerational exactly nature of it and it becomes it gets this really destructive or potentially destructive dynamic to it where one side thinks they've got demography on their side and thinks they've just got this coming wave of um, generations that are going to be voting for them more. And they get pulled more and more to the leading-edge concerns of that coming demography of the younger people. The other side sees that, also think, oh, God, we've got demography against us to some degree. So they emphasise the extremeness of the opposition, Mm. the younger people's opposition, in order to drag their base, as much of the base as as possible, towards them. So you've got that taking campus politics national Though I've lost count of the number of times I've been told the Republicans can never win another election because of demography. Absolutely. So this is not true. So that is the demography thing is so much more flexible than it's laid out. And when I I look in the book at all these talks of hinge moments, where we're just going to get to this point of uh, actually now we've got a natural natural majority. Yeah, and it's just not true. People are much more shifting. And this is one of the things about generational work is not saying it's determinant of those types of things it's about separating those period cohort and life cycle effects because that that demography bit is all about cohort really and you're ignoring two-thirds you're ignoring what's going to happen what are the things that can shift people and you're, you're ignoring life cycles that people do change over their life cycle so that demography is destiny thing is a good illustration of why having this three-way thinking is really mm. useful and a final question, I mean, we've got to talk about it briefly, is, is about the, the pandemic and COVID mm. and what impact the pandemic has had on relations between the generations. I mean, we hear a lot of talk about it, a lot of talk about how it's the youngest who suffered most, the ones who were at school, the ones who missed out on university. Has it changed? Have you got any evidence mm. yet that it's changed the thinking of the different generations about each other? About each other. That's a really good point. Yeah, I mean, we've got, we've got a cover story for the New Scientist today, which we're very excited about, about generation COVID and what does that mean. That's more about the practical implications, as in what COVID has done, as is, as everyone says, is it's exposed and accelerated trends that were already underway mm. in many ways. So the inequalities that were already underway is exposed and, and emphasised. And it's the same sort of thing generationally. So you have seen this. Um, uh, younger people have been more exposed in the labour market. Younger people's education has been more disrupted, all those types of things. But the, the actual, what people think of each other is really interesting because we've got, as part of that New Scientist piece, we've got survey results coming out at the weekend which show that the majority of people think that young people have been selfish rather than selfless uh, during the pandemic, which is... They certainly haven't washed up enough. 
I do sympathise with that. <laughs> my kids, are. but the but that I mean like that is a huge misperception in my reading of what has happened. You've had a pandemic that mostly affects older and other vulnerable groups, where young people risk is much lower. Who have curtailed a lot of their ec educational, economic, and social lives in order to control this, and it has been the compliance has been incredible at the beginning of this at the lockdown. There's mm. loads of headlines about a generational war is brewing. The young are just going to flout these rules, and they just didn't really um, on on mass. But that's not the perception. The perception is that young people have been selfish during this, and they have acted for themselves. <laughs> and that includes among young people themselves, to be honest, as well. It's not just up young, uh, old versus young. The reality, so this is where the perception and reality division comes in. The reality is what the pandemic has showed is the incredible connected connections between young and old in the sense that we really care for each other, both directions. Older people really cared about you know, the impact on younger people and were worried about what is what's going to happen to them. Loads of examples of that uh, and, and vice versa. Um, but the perception is still this stereotyped, cliched view of um, so reckless, reckless young people based on these small examples, un unrepresentative examples. So what does it do for intergenerational connection or relations? I think one thing is it shows that we need to fight these stereotypes with the reality of, of um, these types of things. But it also shows, I think what it also shows is one of the end themes of the book is intergenerational connection is hugely important to us. What the end of the book shows is intergenerational connection is hugely important to us in all sorts of different ways. But both young people and old people benefit from it. And I think what the pandemic has shown a bit is how much we miss that. Right. In, because we were socially isolating and we were yeah. trying to, older people were cocooned and you know, you know, literally cut off from us. So I think my hope a bit is that we recognise that, the value of that intergenerational connection, because we have been drifting apart. We are living more separately in physical areas, the incredible separation of age groups over the past 20 or 30 years, digital separation. There may be more older people online than in the past, but they're on different platforms doing different things from younger people. So we've got these elements of life where we've become more separate. And hopefully, pandemic shows that we miss that. We miss even the connection yeah. that we were having, and hopefully we'll get that back. Bobby, thank you ever so much. I mean, authority relationships at work and pay rises notwithstanding, this could have talked to you for ages about this, and it is well, well worth buying and reading the book. It really is a fascinating and very topical read. Thank you ever so much.